Hello, everyone. Can you hear me? Uh, thank you for all coming this evening to the annual uh, Kuwait lecture. Uh, my name is uh, Toby Dodge, and I am the Kuwait chair and the director of the Middle East Center here at the London School of Economics. Um, I think it speaks both to the perennial and uh, fascination with the Middle East that we've got such a big crowd, but much, much more importantly, it speaks to our uh, this year's uh, Kuwait lecturer, Professor Shafiq Gabra of Kuwait University, uh, that, that has brought you all here to a an audience that is overflowing, so I thank you all for coming. Um, Shafiq will talk for 45 minutes, and then we'll have questions and, uh, and answers, and after that, we will then have a drinks reception outside that. Now, if you can all pull out your mobile phones and make sure they're turned off, I won't have to shout at you when they go off in the middle of the lecture. Um, Right. Well, I, you could say Shafiq uh, needs no introduction, but I shall introduce him anyway. He's a professor of political science at Kuwait University and the founding president uh, of Jasor Arabia, which focuses on youth leadership programs and strategic planning. He uh, was the founding president of the American University in Kuwait from 2003 to 2006, a fine you know, uh, academic institution that I've been lucky enough to be, go to myself, and directed the Kuwait Information Office in Washington from 1998 to 2002, and the Center for, um, of Strategic Studies at Kuwait University 2002 and 2003. Uh, he earned his BA from Georgetown University, his MA from Purdue, and a PhD in political science from the University of Texas. Is the author of five books, most recently, Unsafe Life, The Generation of Dreams and Disappointments, published by Saki Books, and Kuwait uh, study of the dynamics of state and society. Um, he will speak to us uh, on the Arab world at the crossroads, collapse or reform. Thank you, sir, for coming. Good uh, evening. I'm happy to be here and to uh, try to be able to um, reflect on the issues that have a great impact on the Arab world, but also on the world, the Middle East, the Arab world. So first, thank you, Professor Toby, for this invitation. I'm really honored to be at the London School of Economics. So what I will try to do, uh, the roadmap, because we are talking about a complicated region, so the roadmap is the following. I will speak a little bit on the founding, which I believe is the founding moment of a different Middle East, which is 2011, the Arab Spring. Then, second, I'll speak about the counter-revolution which I believe put us in a lot of mess. Third, I will discuss the environment of repression and unemployment and bad economics that exists today in the Middle East, regardless revolution or counter-revolution. Then I will talk about monarchies in the midst of change. Much of the Arab Spring touched strongly the Arab republics. So monarchies, what is the situation with the eight monarchies. My fifth is ISIS or ISIL, the Islamic State or Daesh and the Arab world and maybe the world. How, how do I see that or how do I read it? How do I understand it? And then I will try to conclude with the balance sheet. Where is all this taking us? What does it mean? How to see it? Etc. Etc. And then in the discussion I believe we can uh, build and, and whatever gaps. So let me start with the founding moment of 2011. Now this is a moment where the Arab world suddenly and unexpectedly sought dignity, freedom, and social justice as the centerpiece of the revolutions that spread across several states, from Syria, from Egypt, Tunisia, Egypt, Syria, Libya, etc. 
these movements represented a transformative change and ignited a generational paradigm shift. It equally provided hope in the future of the region. The Arab revolutions succeeded during the first stage on several levels. They changed for presidents. They gave content to the meaning of a constitution, this whole idea of writing new constitutions, etc. The need for elections, genuine elections, public opinion, the role of public opinion, the role of youth at every level. You couldn't imagine how that spread across the region during 2011, this challenge to dictatorships and to their rule all over the region. So we see a, 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 an added, therefore, um, series of concepts, freedom to dignity, to justice, economic justice as well. It also provided political Islam a major opportunity, but it also challenged it. So 211 seems that it, it started a new process in the Arab world, the coming back of politics after it was dead for a long time or it was frozen for a long time under regimes that didn't allow it or sought to freeze it. So the back to politics, to Arab masses, natural political movements, political responses to deep-rooted problems. So one needs to look at this event in a context. And I would say the context here has to be that this is a beginning of change, but this is not the change itself. This is not the end. It, it just unleashed a complex series of events, but that's not the end. It's just the beginning of what is to come and still what is to come. So we're still in the early stages of this complex transformation. So to understand the Arab world, one needs to have a long view. To understand the Arab world, one needs to compare it with other regions and to see that it is not very exceptional. It is like other regions. If we talk about Europe, end of the 18th century, early 19th century, it went through that. Let aside World War I and World War II. Let aside Latin America, all the period, Southeast Asia. Then, when it was quite uh, going through a lot of transformations from China to Southeast Asia. So to see it in, in, in that aspect, it is important to understand that the Arab revolutions uh, was an idea. And that idea appealed to a huge mass of the population. Millions of Arabs participated in them, and therefore it carried weight, it carried a meaning way beyond what may look from the outside. Having said that, and without having to go to more details, and we can have these details in the discussion, the counter-revolution comes very fast. The Arab order wants to assert or parts of the Arab order, wants to assert its standing. So at the foundation of the counter-revolution, which happens after every revolution anyways, nothing also exceptional. The basis of the counter-revolution is that it has a strong belief that the old order could be saved. And that, therefore, what triggered the unrest and the change can be easily contained with disregard to the causes or to other ways of dealing with it. So the deep states and the entrenched regimes or their and stuck back. I mean, they, they struck back uh, with vengeance, ignoring, in many cases, human rights and attempting to, to stop that process at any price. It, it was... It's, it started on, on several levels, but Egypt is a centerpiece in the counter-revolution and was led primarily by the power structures controlled by the generals, backed by important sectors of the Egyptian public opinion. So I do not 
underestimate that there was a public opinion, but the army moved before public opinion could impose a solution similar to the one we saw later in Tunisia. So public opinion feared the Muslim brothers. GCC states participated actively in supporting the new regime. And all together, that appeared, what appeared as a popular movement, resulted actually in the overthrow of an elected Muslim Brother government in July 2003, and later revealed that it, uh, it was a military takeover, continues to be so. And it is clear today, more and more. Rather than to hand over and move back, it stayed. So it is stuck. So Egypt, in a way, is stuck in its own counter-revolution. And I'm not sure how it's going to end, how this will uh, be resolved. Well, so far there are about 40,000 prisoners today, and it resulted in so many death penalties. They were not carried, but they are there. I mean, the, the former president, the former group, the staff, all are in jail. So uh, uh, not to get deeper into, but one sees how that started something, started a process uh, with, with all the abuses that took place and maybe convinced many Islamists who started to give the democratic way a chance that maybe there is no need for that. Let's go militant. So I think it affected the way many Islamists <coughs> were coming out in that direction, moved back. So, I mean, declaring the Muslim Brothers, for instance, as a terrorist organization helped in that negative process. Um, lots of torture, people dying and disappearing. Disappearances go on until today. It's a very uh, sad situation. Uh, reminds me of Turkey of a certain time when the military took over. And when one reads of that era, sees the same, similar. Uh, so basically, it, it undermined the moderate elements in political Islam. Now, the counter-revolution in Syria, I mean, it started before, even with the revolution. I mean, before there was a counter-revolution, the Syrian regime, regime acted immediately with, with uh, extreme abuse of human rights. Demonstrations were very peaceful during the first three months of the Syrian uprising, and then and then the bullets were coming, the, the murders, the kidnapping, the uh, killing of a singer uh, for the revolution, killing of poets. And it, it was so much that somehow the revolution was pushed into an armed rebellion. And once you go into an armed rebellion, then it's another dynamic. It, then it goes into a civil war. So, but in the Syrian case, it ignited a sectarian conflict as well. Much of the regime has control of a particular sect because this is the way the security operated, the trust between them brought a particular group of people and isolated the Sunni majority at many levels. So it, it added a sectarian uh, uh, dynamic to this, adding to the uh, uh, Iraq situation, the Shia Sunni situation, Iran comes in, the complexity is growing. The foundation is all people want to live in dignity and to have a normal life, but it went beyond in that context. Now, coming to the Gulf, and I will just put this as a footnote, but later I will talk more about the GCC. Also, there, wa there, there was a, a, uh, an impact of the Arab Spring, but particularly this impact was clear in Bahrain. The Bahrainis took to the streets. They expressed rights, needs, aspirations, uh, but it was crushed. And there were some deaths as well. And then the GCC interfered. From the GCC, it saw this as Iran. I saw it, the people of Bahrain, regardless what kind of sect, they were underprivileged, they were put under difficult conditions over quite a long time, and they wanted uh, a more egalitarian system, and they were crushed. But the movement didn't die. It keeps on. So there are, and it's a peaceful movement. It's a peaceful movement. It didn't get into violence. So 
That's just to give you a highlight. So basically, we spoke about the revolutions and the highlight, again, of the counter-revolution. Uh, but the footnotes, or in the middle, there is a lot of deaths and there is a lot of loss and there is a lot of torture and there is a lot of silencing of uh, individuals and there is a lot of censorship and there is an attempt to bring down the Arab world back to where it was before the revolution and to punish those who made the revolution once and for all. So no one else will think of doing this again. So it's done with vengeance. And you see that in several places, the way it is done. It's punishing those who dared to think of this. Which is the young generations, mostly non-Islamists, mostly uh, uh, secularist, uh, uh, human rights activists who really ignited this revolution. Now, let's look at the environment of repression and unemployment, which I, I think is what creates the entire uh, situation, what adds to the entire uh, uh, complexity. So basically, the counter-revolution had limited vision beyond the security, the army, and putting society back in line. It had a limited vision. It didn't have more to offer. Some wished it had. Some actually supported the counter-revolution and bet on it addressing the issues of unemployment, renaissance will come, change will come, even democracy will come, and human rights will come, but give them some time and see what they're going to do. But what happened? Many of us said it's not going to do, but try to take us back. Because the analysis in, the, in, the, in, in, in many quarters in the Arab world at the level of leadership was these revolutions were a conspiracy. And they were organized by agents of the West, agents that were trained here or there. But these are not genuine. We've been doing a good job after all, and we've been treating the people well. We gave them security, we took their freedom, and they should be happy. Why rebel? It's all about security versus freedom. This is the logic in much of the Arab world, with exceptions, definitely. I mean, we, I mean I'm, I'm giving the ideal of it, but I... I Definitely, when you go to the micro, you see a more liberal place, you see a more hardcore place, etc. But the, the paradigm in the Arab world is that we give you security, where you can work, eat, live, etc., and we do the politics. You don't interfere in politics. Politics cannot. It's, it's problematic in this sense. And, and, and it's in that context that they had a limited solution to the problems, did not solve the problems that made the revolutions in the first place, did not understand the issues that created these revolutions, and therefore the situation in the region continues to produce an environment characterized by, I mean, this is across, unemployment, big time. There are some countries, many countries that have it. I mean, statistics will tell you 10%, 15%, the truth is 30 and 35% in many places. People want to leave and immigrate. They want to come here. I mean, you keep supporting dictatorship, they all come here. <laughs> really, I mean, why not? I mean, you support dictatorship, so they get kicked out, and the dictatorship rules with a smaller population. It's manageable. You don't need to have 100 million in Egypt. I mean, 50 million is enough. <laughs> right? I mean, why not let the other come? So. This is the, the challenge today. So unemployment stands high. Among youth, it's a disaster. Among the young, and mostly graduates of colleges and universities, just like you, who have no future, who have nothing to hope for, except, except if they belong to a very privileged group of families or family, then they're okay. But to tell me, what's the future in Egypt for an average person? What's the future in Syria or in Iraq? 600 billion disappeared after the change of regime. Nobody knows where the money went. It's a poor country. It's one of the wealthiest. What's happening? And therefore, you, you end up with high unemployment, which, uh, and employment is not based on merit, and most of the wealth lies in the hands of the few. It lies in the hands of the few worldwide. This is a phenomenon today all over the world, and I 
can say we're around another maybe economic crisis here or there. But in the Middle East, in the Arab world, this problem is much deeper, is much clearer. No clear tax system. I mean, if there is taxes, I mean, evasion will be just very simple to do. So, so no, no clear tax system, uh, uh, no clear give and take on so many issues. Um, I mean, according to the NGO, I mean, Global Financial Integrity, it reports that the Arab world lost 740 billion through illegal transfer of money between 2003 and 2012. 740. That explains why people are going, I mean, in a certain direction in that part of the world. Uh, so injustice in the region is evident in so many ways. As we said, employment, unemployment, lack of citizens' ability to influence the political system or the government at any level. This includes, I mean, the right to elect heads of republics. You don't have that right. Or the right to elect prime minister. And if you do, it is done at a, at, in a way that is really not representing. It's not really free, it's not really open, it's not whether from going to the ballot all the way to competing before that, to competing after that, the media is controlled. So where are you going to compete freely among political parties? So you'll find constitutional rights on paper, but they are weak when it is implemented. Public funds become private wealth very, to a very small minority, Majority of the population starts losing, losing in opportunities, in education, in health, in fair treatment, etc. Et so you, you end up with the environment, the same environment that you are trying to solve a security issue, quote unquote, a rebellion or revolution or acts of violence, but the same environment recreates this every day. And then when people express opinion and oppose, or express publicly, then imprisonment, potentially death, is also a case in so many places in the region. Now, we've seen what happened in the Syrian uh, situation, but that way of thinking of the Syrian regime uh, extends beyond Syria. We've seen parts of it in Iraq, we've seen parts of it elsewhere, so it's not very unique to one place. Now, let me go to the second point, which is or the third or the fourth point, which is on the monarchies in the midst of change. So we discussed the environment just now, and now let's see how the monarchies are dealing. The monarchies, we have eight monarchies, but there are several of the monarchies have small populations. So it's a different story when we talk about a monarchy with a population of 300,000 or a population of 1.2 million, such as, such as Kuwait. Uh, uh, but when you talk about a larger population, it's, it's then the challenge is bigger. When you talk about a monarchy that doesn't have oil and doesn't have the wealth, then it's another challenge. So the Arab rebellions do, did put pressure on the region's monarchies. However, it's important to realize that the monarchies tended to have more legitimacy than the, entra the entrenched depots of the, Arab, the Arabian republics had more legitimacy. I mean, when I ask myself why, or maybe when you ask why, I would say because the monarchies generally, families, when they developed into independence, they respected other balances of power, they respected other families, they respected property. There, there was an understanding, some sort of a social pact that helped these countries be less in their absolutism compared to some of the other republics. But it doesn't mean it's either or. There are cases of absolutism in, in, in the monarchies as well. So you have challenges. The, 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 the same challenges, the same issues of expression, freedom, government accountability, etc., was raised in the uh, monarchies the same way, or at least erred in so many different uh, uh, ways. Uh, in... Uh, 212, we saw a movement in Jordan, but we saw more a movement in Morocco. And the amount of people who demonstrated in the streets of Morocco was more than those that demonstrated in the streets of Tunisia. 
Tunisia, the president left, the regime changed. But in Morocco, the king decided to provide amendments to the constitution and to take several steps in the direction of giving up important powers. So he recognized that there should be elected competition, political parties, and a prime minister that comes within that context. And today, the Muslim brothers, the prime minister is a Muslim brother who is in coalition with others under a monarch that still have important powers but has given other powers in the process. This did not happen in Jordan. So there are other challenges. Still, some changes, but limited. The economic situation in Morocco and Jordan is very difficult. But I would say in Jordan it is extremely difficult. Jordan lost its partners in Iraq and Syria to trade. So it is cut today. And therefore, with a young population, it is a huge economic challenge that can translate politically in, in so many ways. So to what one sees here is the call for reform. It is impossible. I mean, all I would say that the Arab republics had revolutions. The Arab monarchies, because of their legitimacy, they have a little bit more time. So how long? Nobody knows. They have more time. Do they have 10 years? Or do they have 8? Or do they have 12? I was, writing, we were, I was involved in a report with a major uh, group, and we were trying to, to put great things about Morocco and Jordan. But then someone raised the point that, well, what about the report comes? And then the second day, there is a quagmire. So if you want to say that there are some steps, put them, behind, put them in the back of the report. Don't put them in the beginning of the report. Because the region is shifting, and the region is changing. It's not static at all. It's very dynamic. And therefore, the whole issue is how much time uh, you look at uh, 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 places uh, like uh, uh, Bahrain. Bahrain, as I mentioned, I mean, just uh, went into the streets calling for uh, changes, reform. But none of Kuwait had major social, political movement led by the opposition. Between 2011 and 2013, it ended up at 2011 bringing the prime minister to resign. Had tens of thousands in the streets, several uh, major uh, gatherings. Uh, so what did they want? They didn't want to change the political system. This is one, I mean, all the demonstrations in Kuwait, not one was killed. But there were injuries, and there were prisons, and there were sentences, and there were, I mean, it wasn't easy for the youth to face that situation. So yet, the main demands are to have political parties. This has not allowed for the maturity of, for instance, the Kuwaiti political experiment. So to have political parties and some of the slogans would go as far as the need for competition between parties after a stage, that will allow for a prime minister that has the ability to run the affairs under uh, an agreement of powers with the emir, with the king. I think what we are seeing here is a, a, a setup that could take that part of the world. If monarchies would survive, it would take that part of the world to more constitutional parliamentary monarchies. I think the seeds of this is clear in 2011, and the seed of this will not go away, and it is only a matter of when the right setup, the right compromise, the right arrangement uh, will develop, and in which country. It is clear to me this is not now in the pipeline in Saudi Arabia. There is more expression. There are more people criticizing. There are more people active. But yet, this has not moved in that direction. But in five years with it, I, would believe, I believe it will. And if it affects Saudi Arabia, it will affect everyone around. So I, it's a dynamic between Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the rest of the countries of the GCC and the monarchies. And we've seen the Morocco take a major step and maybe later needs another major step because that's not enough. So the impact, the ripple effect 
is, is there, and people want more, want participation, and believe that uh, without transparency, without accountability, without participation, without open media, without their governments will not be run on proper uh, uh, policies. Uh, uh, policy will not reflect itself uh, to the needs of the population and will be lost uh, over time in uh, issues of corruption uh, and uh, issues of uh, making decisions that make no sense, uh, uh, building things that make no sense, and in the end, the population will pay the price. So I think that takes uh, uh, care of where I see the monarchies, uh, where uh, different priorities as well on, on issues of expression and freedom. And uh, it's, it's an ongoing uh, process. But to conclude on the monarchies under pressure and the issue of reform, today Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states are involved in a protracted war in Yemen against the Houthis and the former president of Yemen, Ali Saleh, who used to be an ally. And therefore, this war is proving to be costly. It looks like an attrition war. It looks like it's not going to end soon. To end it soon, you have to make a big compromise. So I am not sure that anybody is ready now. But after all, Yemen has been destroyed. So it is a war in Yemen in a failed state that it's not going to be easy to think about what's next. Yemen will be a good place for Qaeda and ISIS, but it will also be a place that could be partitioned between the south and the north. So in a way, uh, one is trying to make meaning, but the Gulf involved in Yemen at that level, but also looks at Iraq. It's... In, in, a, in, a, in a situation of war, and they are involved in the war against ISIS. Then looks at Syria, and they're trying to help the opposition, the Saudi, the uh, Qatari, in part, I mean, several Arab states, including Kuwait, are, are closer to the opposition. And so Syria, trying to deal with Lebanon to create a balance of power, trying to deal with Iraq to create another situation uh, and uh, afraid of Iran's influence, but at the same time fighting ISIS. Two contradictory uh, aspects, and at the same time involved in the Houthi, etc. At the same time, not very uh, happy with Bahrain because of the continued, wow, this is too much for so That guarantees with the low uh, income from oil, that guarantees a lot of the funds uh, have to be spent, if this continues, within the coming uh, uh, five years, six years, seven years, I mean, it is part of this broad uh, challenge today faced in the region. Now, it's in this context, maybe, just to, to conclude on the Gulf uh, part, that in January 2015, and here I will quote a leading opposition member uh, in Kuwait, who is now serving a three-year sentence for critiquing uh, the system uh, strongly. He's a very strong in, in, his, in his expressions and critique. So he's serving a three-year sentence. His name is Musallam al-Barrak, and this leading opposition uh, uh, figure uh, said the following. So I'm, I, I will mention what he said for what it may mean from the Gulf context. And he says the following. If we were presented with a revolution today or reform that will mature over time, we will choose reform to avoid, to avoid the price of a revolution. And this is man in jail, and, and he, he, he will come out, and he will, I believe, continue to commit to reform. So there is a feeling in the Gulf, and a feeling that is strong, I believe, when I discuss with my Saudi colleagues, the critics, the intellectuals. On the one hand, they don't want to see their system collapse. 
after what they've seen in Syria and Iraq. On the other hand, they know if the system doesn't reform, it will collapse. It's really... So they want to defend the system so it doesn't collapse. Not now. It's strong today. It looks today strong. But looking down the line, five years, ten years from now, but at the same time they realize if it doesn't change this package, this relationship between leader and led, between governor and governed, in a new package with new generations that think differently and read differently and interact differently and look to the world differently and, and, and communicate differently, that it will break the systems. It's, it could be likely that a small group could easily do what happened to Syria or happened to other places. So the main issue in the minds of many, in the middle, among many intellectuals, who may not have thought this way 10 years ago, is that there is a need for reform. And the sooner, the better. So on the one hand, you find many of them defending their system on so many issues, but at the same time, wanting reform and afraid that things will not uh, catch up at the right pace, at the right time. So that's that, in that context, I quote Salam al-Barrak on the need for reform and whether revolution or reform, no, we will opt for reform. Here meaning, basically, you end up with a, 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 an elected, I mean, the idea is to have more freedom, more open media, more competitiveness between political parties, uh, a more egalitarian economy, open up the economy for the young, for entrepreneurs, for uh, equal opportunity. There is a lot of issues in that context. Think about all these laws or rules that may have a sign of discrimination, deal with privilege, uh, 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 seek uh, uh, a better social pact for everybody and, and, and bring about that level of where government is more representative of the larger population and is more uh, potentially can change based on election, doesn't stay for 10 or 20 or 30 years unchanged, unaffected, etc. So that's, that's uh, uh, basic today uh, to such uh, potential uh, transformation. Now, let me go to my next point, which is ISIS and the Arab world. So having said all of this, I'm not sure if you still believe that ISIS is an unnatural expression of such an environment. And it's in that context that ISIS, the latest extremist and simplistic ideology to capitalize on the vacuum created by the region's social, political, and economic problems, it stands starkly opposite to the peaceful protests and the revolutions of 2011. To a certain extent, ISIS represents a marginalized, traumatized group. The Sunnis of Iraq and the Sunnis of Syria, it is a result of, in part of the brutality of the system of Bashar al-Assad, the regime, the alienation of Iraqi Sunnis, and the US-led invasion. Uh, it all set so many dynamics, but it also reflects changes in the jihadi Islamists worldwide. So it's a combination. Uh, jihadi Islamists, such as Al-Qaeda, etc. So, it, it, in a way, ISIS evolved from an environment of state repression, loss of hope by centrist, moderate forces, and the systematic elimination of the peaceful activists who set off and dominated the Syrian revolution in the first place, but who dominated all the revolutions. So here we can talk about the role of Prime Minister al-Maliki, the mistakes he, he did, the, the way uh, uh, things happened. ISIS could be seen as a version of the Jacobians of the French Revolution. Should not be blamed on Islam. All religions have a capacity to go in that direction. And all religions have a capacity to go in the opposite direction. And we've seen that throughout history. We've seen that even in Britain going back, or we've seen it in uh, uh, many places. We've seen it in the Khmer Rouge, for instance. So, in a way, a number of socio-political structures have been major 
in contributors in nurturing extremism in the region, including the marginalization, persecution, relative deprivation. So one must also add to this that the absence of democracy, widespread corruption, foreign military interventions, occupation, including Palestine, violence breeds untold reactions. That of ISIS has exceeded the imagination, the enormity of the human toll. East-West relations have also been, in a way, part of that overall uh, evolution. So, uh, looking at, at the phenomena, I mean, 4,500 Jordanians are fighting with ISIS in Syria and Iraq. So that's telling. Uh, there are hundreds, if not more, from the Gulf who, who go. They don't want passports. They don't want to be part of a state. They feel they are treated differently in there with, the, with that group. They go. They're energetic in it. They become leaders. They can become prime ministers in ISIS. They become foreign minister of ISIS. Or they can become, what I want to say, they can live their dream, whatever the dream is. I mean, still, they go for a dream. It's a sh shaky dream. It's a problematic dream. But because many other dreams have been murdered on the ground over the years, you are not allowed to think to become X, Y, and Z. So you go to ISIS and you become whatever you want to become. Right? I mean, I, I don't want to simplify it, but I, I get that, that sense of marginalization, injured identity, helplessness, uh, hopelessness, blocked future, and here you are. Somebody gives you an ideology. Uh, I mean, it's like a drug, huh? It's like a kind of, it's, it, it, in a way there is like drugs to, gives this sense of power and, 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 and so ISIS comes to the theater, it, it, it mixes all the cards, it murders left and right. I try to count how many enemies are for ISIS. There's so many of them. Almost everybody is an enemy. I mean, you can see where this comes from. And so, so everybody becomes an enemy, everybody. I mean, weren't the Jacobians an enemy of everybody? And at the end of the day, an enemy of themselves? But they came through this theater of history. They rise, they create havoc, they kill, they murder, and then they die. But maybe the ones that come after them will try to do things so they don't come again. And to do things they don't come again, we need to be more civil, and we need to think of change and reform and education and culture and music and life and quality of life. We need to think of the issues that relate to what brought ISIS to the theater, which is justice, fairness, marginalization, extreme privilege, and extreme lack of privilege, repression. All of these issues bring such a group to this. So the balance sheet. Well, here uh, we uh, can see that the old Arab order's strength stems from its monopoly and dominance of the means of violence, police and military, and the law of courts, etc. But this is exactly its weakness, because it's not providing alternative. An element of legitimacy might still hang in the air throughout the Arab world, even in Egypt, still, still there, however, it is getting thin and thinner every day. So everybody, in a way, is stuck with an order that is changing. The violence in the region is the result of frustration, lack of peaceful alternatives, and grassroots movements continue to seek reform and change. The Arab world is actually, I mean, is in a state, it's like sitting on a time bomb mostly of youth who constitute the overwhelming majority. And therefore, that continues to be a fact in the Arab world, the most important one. Arab youth are not of one mind. They either become totally radicalized or they 
are invited to come and participate in a reform-oriented movement that will take them to better life in line with their aspirations. Uh, or they will immigrate. If you block everything and destroy everything uh, the way Syria did, as President Assad did. And therefore, uh, but believing that this immigration isn't easy, isn't, it will end up exploding, creating more failed states over time if no reform is, is dealt with. Um, and therefore, uh, it's in, to see that important sections of the elite in the Arab world still ha are still in a state of denial and haven't yet uh, connected with the changes since 2011. Uh, in the past, colonialism used to say that uh, people uh, in many of the regions that were colonized uh, cannot rule themselves. They're not ready yet. And many in the elites of the Arab world believe the Arabs are not ready for democracy. And some of us ask, I mean, what have you been doing in the last 50, 60 years in preparation for democracy? Zero. Nothing. Actually, doing everything that can be done. So never that region can go democratic. But at some point, people are fed up with, the, with that situation and will try their own, uh, uh, their own way of expressing what they need. Uh, so far, uh, what we uh, are seeing that the counter-revolution had one major accomplishment, and it is an important one. It's just buying time. So, so far, it is buying time. Uh, the only, I mean, the real option for the Arab world is to uh, find compromises and solutions. So far, the Arab world, the regimes are fighting on two fronts. Now, they are fighting terrorism, as expressed by ISIS, but also expression, political activity, writing, uh, social movements, youth, etc. It doesn't work this way. If you do not discriminate between the difference between violence and nonviolence, we'll end up with both, but we'll end up with more violence than nonviolence. Uh, and that really takes us to the way that I look now on the different uh, uh, aspects of the Western role in, in all of this. The West, uh, if, if it keeps making human rights, political reform, undemocratization, uh, something that is not its priority, something uh, that comes at the end, uh, it's, uh, it will uh, add to the problem as it has done in the past. The Arab world's problems therefore in part are related to Western policies, Israeli occupation, dictatorial practices. The West wanted oil and wanted stability to secure its flow, and it, it got it, and therefore turned blind eye on repression and human rights violations. But this is what got us where we are now. So we need to think of how all of this is tied up to where we are uh, today in, in the uh, situation. Uh, the conflicts of civil wars in the uh, different places, the turn to civil wars, like Syria, like Iraq, would need compromises. We'd need to look at all the elements that are included. And therefore, uh, it uh, it's, will not be easy to have a, a final winner at some point, whether opposition, remnants of the regime, at some point, some arrangement has to come that will provide for changes, major changes within, but at the same time guarantees minority rights, guarantees everybody's rights in that context. This doesn't mean Assad has to stay. I do believe it is very hard for someone to have destroyed Syria to come back to the world and say, please give me the money to rebuild it. I mean, it's going to need new faces that have not been implicated in the bloodshed that the regime uh, has uh, uh, done. Uh, I would say today the individual attacks by Palestinians on Israelis that began last October is another expression 
of this next wave that I see evolving in the region. Still, it's youth, it's the young. Young Palestinians are angry and feel helpless. They also yearn to revive their national project. They represent this Arab generational desire for decent, peaceful life in which they have respect, human and political rights, and equality. And that goes on in the, in the context. And therefore, we see in all of that that there are some successful examples, and in particularly the Tunisian example that is under a lot of pressure, but still it has been able to bring in the Muslim brothers, to take them out through elections, through ballot. There has been compromises and arrangements. They agreed on a constitution that has, for the first time, so many amendments and so many articles that are uh, very forward-looking and progressive. Uh, so I would uh, see that this is also part of where the region would like to, to go. Uh, today there are forces altogether. So one sees the Arab regime, the, the, this deep state, the youth, the, um, the liberals. There are several forces operating. The Islamists, the peaceful Islamists, but then the hardcore militant Islamists. Uh, any arrangement in the future that wants to exclude the militant Islamists have to find an arrangement between parts of the deep state, the peaceful Islamists, which still draw on 30% of the population in places like Egypt, no less than that. No representation for them, but they are a force. And therefore, you need these compromises to bring about a better region, a situation that can hold and maybe out of these compromises with a vision towards youth, because at the end it's going to come to the youth. The youth of the Arab world maybe are the ones to make the final democratic compromise in the region. Uh, they will find a region that has been burned, that, has, uh, uh, that ISIS may be defeated, maybe ISIS too comes, and other wars, failed states. Uh, they will realize that the generation that was before them uh, didn't do a good job, uh, to put it at least, and they will be the ones to rebuild and to create a genuine democracy in that part of the world. This process could take 10 to 15 years from today, and I do see it happening in that, and we have to have the hope for it. Thank you very much.